Well, it is a treat to be here. As Pastor Todd said, I know a decent amount about this church, though I have never visited from the students that have come from here and have gone through the Radius program and my father talking about this church. I've been to Des Moines a few times. Last time I was here is during Ragbri. Woo! That was uh, something. Never seen so much spandex in my life. But um, glad to be here. Thankful for what the Lord is doing in your midst and the DNA. I like the way that uh, your pastor says it, the trajectory, the posture that you guys have as a church. And that begins in Ankeny, and it works its way out, and it works its way out to other parts of Iowa, and then to Kentucky, and then to other locations, and then it works its way out to Indonesia, and it works its way out to Afghanistan, and it works its way out to the ends of the earth. But that posture starts with those of you in the pews and the way that you think about what church is and why you guys exist as a church. And so I'm thankful for that posture that you all have Before we get into our text this morning, we're going to look at Matthew 28. This is the most famous of all the Great Commission passages. We're just going to touch on Matthew 28, then we're going to go to Romans 10, because I think Paul fleshes out the Great Commission and kind of the the ingredients needed for the gospel to make it to the ends of the earth. And so we're going to look at those two passages, but I'm going to give you a little bit of my own background first. Um, I was, uh, met my wife in college. I got a degree in finance, uh, emphasis in accounting and ended up working as an accountant, found out I was decent at it, started working my way up the ladder and eventually was CFO for a Dutch multinational, worked a lot in Europe, uh, mostly in the Netherlands and then some in Germany and some in France. And by God's grace, uh, my wife and I were called into missions. We were faithful members at a local church. I think it's so important that if you feel like you have a calling into missions or a direction that you find from Scripture into missions, you have the confirmation of your local church elders in that process. There are no maverick missionaries that we see in Scripture or church history. You have these two working together, and we see the Lord, the Spirit that indwells each one of us, guiding each of them to a particular location and to an occupation. And that's what happened with us. And we got challenged into missions through reading our Bible. And what we understood from Scripture, we started heading towards, we wanted to take the gospel somewhere where it's never been before. And so we left my job and we headed to the country of Papua New Guinea. If you find Australia and you go up, you'll find Papua New Guinea. Moved in there, learned the first language. There are 3,100-ish languages left on the face of the earth today that have no gospel, no disciples, and no church. And we wanted to get to one of those locations. And so we had to learn two languages. We had to learn the language of Papua New Guinea, and then eventually we learned the language of the people group there. And so I'll never forget when we were wrapping up our study of the national language, the mission leadership came to us and they handed us a paper that had seven people groups on it that had been asking for missionaries for at least five years. They didn't make the list unless they'd been asking for five consecutive years for someone to come. They're not asking for Jesus. We know from Scripture that no man seeks after God, but they're asking for someone to come to bring the little white pills so their babies will stop dying to come learn their language and to bring this talk that they had heard had landed among that village, among that people group, and had totally changed that language group. And so those people groups, we looked at one. One of them was the Tuwadi people who had been asking for 12 years. Think about that for half a second. 
12 years asking for what you and I have on a regular basis. That's not meant to make us feel guilty. It's meant to make us feel privileged. Why in the world did the God of heaven and earth allow us, the English speakers of this world, to have such wealth? And are we to keep it to ourselves? Wealth in terms of understanding of God's word. And so we decided we were going to go to Tuwadi, and the day came for the airplane to small little Cessna 206 landed. It's going to take us into the Tuwadi area, and we were going to hike to their village. Landed, pilot got out, and he says, guys, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is it's a great flying day. I can take you anywhere. The bad news is I heard that the airfield I'm going to drop you off at had six inches of rain last night. There is about a foot of water on the airfield. We are not going there. What's your second choice? And so we pulled out that piece of paper that had those people groups on it. And the second choice that we had researched slightly was this people group called the Yembi Yembi. The Yembi were a dominant hostile people group in that whole area of Papua New Guinea. They had cannibalized and beaten off many of the other groups there and shrunk their populations down significantly and theirs had grown consequently. And so uh, we quickly scribbled out on a piece of paper a note that basically said, we're coming to your people group, please be nice. And we took off, took a pe uh, the piece of paper, rolled it up, put it in an empty water bottle, flew for about 35 minutes, got over Yembiembi territory, saw a group of houses, a little village that was there, and figured this was one of their major areas. And we dropped the plane down to about 100 feet over the trees. Pilot turned the plane on its side, and I was sitting in the co-pilot seat, and I threw the water bottle out, and there's this little kid. I remember it in my mind's eye, running, trying to catch the water bottle. And I'm thinking, we are going to kill the first Yembiembi we meet. It's going to drill him in the head. It's just going to be horrible. Thankfully, the kid wasn't fast enough. Water bottle hits the ground. He pulls the note out. And then all of these people come out from the jungle that we couldn't see. They were hidden under the trees. And they were waving the note to us. We don't know if they can read it. But there was no airfield there at that time. And so we've kept flying. Flew for about another half hour. Landed in the closest major airfield that was close enough to them. We loaded up in a motor canoe. Motor canoe is a canoe about as long as this room. And it's got an outboard motor on the back of it. And we started motor canoeing, getting closer and closer to Yembiembi territory. And as we changed out the gas, um, the gas tank the last time, switching it over to a fresh one, we could hear the drums in the distance pounding out, telling everybody that we're coming. Uh, and that was how they communicated with people that were in far off distances. And as we pulled into Yembi Yembi, we got a greeting of a lifetime. The Yembis, if they like you, they take a huge hunk of mud, they shove it into your face and they push it down to about your Adam's apple. Then they take diced up flower petals, they whip those at your face and it sticks to the mud and now you're beautiful. Now you look nice. And so you're welcomed into the village. And that's what happened with us. And so boom, mud flower petals and we're in the village and then we're off and running and so that was our introduction we stayed there for five days we took a ton of video we wrote their language down got a bunch of pictures then we went out the same way we came in saw our wives our kids uh, met with mission leadership called our home churches back in the united states prayed about god is this where you have us going and we believe that is where the lord was taking us so we went back in again and we told the yembis we're coming to be your missionaries we are going to come live among you and we're going to do four things we're going to learn your language and culture because the message we have is too important to get wrong Number two, we're going to teach you how to read and write in your own language. They had no alphabet, so we had to develop that. 
Number three, there's this really important book. We're going to translate a bunch of smaller books, but we're going to translate this one really important book into your language. And then the final one, we're going to teach you everything that that book says. We're not going to leave until we're done with those four jobs, but we promise we're going to do those four jobs. And the Yumbies were related. I mean, they, they figured that we were going to be there for till we were old and gray, which is some level of truth to it. Um, but we, we moved in among them, and immediately we started learning their language, learning how to speak like they spoke, learning their culture, learning to understand why they hunted particular ways. And Yembi Yembi, a boy changes into a man when he kills a wild boar at night with a spear by himself. So they came to us, the missionaries, and they asked us if we'd ever killed a wild boar. And one of the guys had worked at a pig farm in Minnesota, and he said, yeah, I've killed some pigs. And he said, no, no, no. Have you ever killed a wild boar at night with a spear by yourself? Yeah, never done that. And so they came up with a new name for us. You know what they called us? Overgrown boys. Because we were these large-bodied guys that had somehow been allowed to marry and to father children, but we'd never become real men. And so for the Yembis, for the sake of the gospel, so that when the gospel comes, it didn't come from a boy, it came from a man, we had to learn their language, we had to learn their culture, and we had to learn how to hunt wild boar. And we had to kill our first wild boar at night with a spear by ourselves. We had to do a multitude of things. We had to get remarried, been married twice, same woman each time, <laughs> so that the Yembis could see us as insiders. Aren't you thankful that the Lord Jesus came as an insider to us? He didn't come as a 32-year-old and just all of a sudden popped onto the scene and did a few miracles. What happened to all those years from 1 to 32? He was learning our language. He was eating our food. He was walking our trails. He got to know Jewish life. He could tell the sunsets, the color of the sky. He could walk the fields of grain and eat the grain that he peeled. He did all things. He became human. He became killable. He became like us in every way except without sin. This is the legacy of our God, this one that we sing of, the Lord who came to us in the same way that we endeavored to go to the MBM. We're not little Jesuses walking around. That's not what I'm trying to say, but there's a model that we can see in Scripture that as we love people, as we care about people, whether that's in Ankeny, whether that's in San Diego, California, or whether that's in Yembi Yembi, we love people and we get to know them. We walk their walk with them. So the sake of the gospel, the gospel can be made clear. And finally, after two and a half years of learning their language, uh, we started teaching. And we didn't start in Matthew. We didn't start in Romans. We started in Genesis 1-1. And we started laying out this God of the Bible who was so different than their gods. The Yembis had gods. They had spirits that controlled different aspects of life. They had a high god who had made man. The high god tried the first time and he got it wrong. He made pigs the first time. And then he tried again and he made crocodiles. He got a little bit closer. And then finally, the third try, he made man. And when the Yembis heard about this god, who the first time, he makes everything perfectly. He doesn't get things wrong. He doesn't need do-overs, second tries. This God is different than our gods. And this God loves what he creates. He's kind to humans. The fact that God made Adam and then made Eve and gave her to Adam. What a startling contrast to their gods. <coughs> 
And finally, as we started walking through all of these different things, we started laying out all of the different ways that God was good to the Yembiembis. We had a canoe that extended all the way across the front of the teaching house, and we flipped the canoe over on its back, and we had all the different Yembi foods. The Yembis have 17 different kinds of bananas, 21 different kinds of sago, tons of different kinds of pumpkins, and we laid them all out. We had about a 1,000 people a day that were coming to the teaching, and we laid them out, and everybody could try some. Isn't God good? Then we flew in foods that they'd never seen before. Apples, oranges, pears, sliced them up so everybody had a little bit kind of like a communion wafer size enough to try. Does God eat food? No. Why did he make such incredible variety? Because he loves you. He loves me. This is the God of the universe. This is the God who made the sun, moon, and stars. And the Yembe started to fall in love with this God who is so different than their gods. This one who was so good to people. And we kept teaching and we kept teaching as we worked our way towards Genesis chapter 3. And finally, we got to Genesis chapter 3, the hinge of humanity. I am firmly convinced if you don't understand Genesis chapter 3, there's no way you understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You don't know what you're being saved from until you understand Genesis 3. Then the answer comes in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we started walking through the fall of mankind. And the Yembis, they're not like you guys. You guys are a normal North American audience. You know when it's appropriate to be quiet, when it's appropriate to talk, all that kind of stuff, laugh, sing, all that. The Yembis had never sat in institutional learning. And so when we started teaching, and you've got about a 1,000 people, you've got pigs and dogs running through the teaching house all the time. But if they like what you're saying, any time that you're talking, they'll yell from anywhere, Keep talking! This talk is good to my belly. The belly is the seat of their emotions. In North America, it's our heart. My heart is broken. My heart is full. That's how we speak euphemistically about emotion. The Yembis, it's their belly. If they don't like what you're saying, they'll yell from anywhere at any time, shut your mouth. I'm about to throw this talk up because it's coming from their belly. And so you know really fast how you're doing as a preacher. You don't need to ask for feedback. You're getting it right on the spot. So... We're teaching as we're working our way through, and we teach through Genesis chapter 3, and they say, no, 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 show us, show us. And so we would act things out. And so my coworker's wife and myself, I was playing the role of Satan. I had this black bedsheet on, and she was Eve. We started acting out, and we had done this before for a few of the key stories. We acting out the fall of mankind. And as we're acting this out, the people are moving closer and closer to where we've only got about a five-foot area where we're walking around, and I'm talking to her, and I'm saying, Eve, Eve, take the fruit, take a bite, just reach out and touch it. Your eyes will be open, and you'll be just like God. And the Yembis can't stand it. Again, they're not like you guys. They're yelling at her. They're saying things I can't say from the pulpit. These are unsaved people. Just raining insults on her. Hey, smart lady, where do you think your food came from? How come God's been so good to you? Now you'll turn your back on him. And she's, and she's not interacting with them. She's just talking and just raining insults down on her because they don't see fables and fairy tales. They see their ancestors. And what happens to their ancestors will trickle down to them today. And my coworker's wife finally reaches out, grabs the fruit, takes a bite, and a thousand people go quiet. And we start teaching on the ramifications of the fall. When we moved into Yembi Yembi, most of the people that were in the village had a mother, an aunt, a sister who had died in childbirth. The promise of the fall that your women will have incredible pain in childbirth. 
about 15% of our girls we buried their first time that they had a baby because they weren't ready, their bodies weren't ready to have children. From dust you came to dust you will return, another promise of the fall. Man, I tell you what, you guys haven't seen the evidences of the fall till you've buried a body in the tropics. One of the things I think that is so missing in North America is that our Christian young people have never been to an old folks home, a funeral home, have never buried people that aren't, that aren't in suits and dressed up well. To see the degradation of the human body, this is good for us. We weren't meant to be that way. That's not how it was supposed to be. Death is foreign to us, and it's supposed to be foreign to us. This is a result of the fall. But there's another part in Genesis chapter 3. There's the promise of the seed of the woman who will come someday. And we had a fig tree that was growing right outside our teaching house, went out, ripped off a branch, and we hung that branch from the little podium that I was teaching off of. And as we kept teaching for three and a half months, that branch, as it went down to smaller branches, and then down to leaves, the leaves turned yellow, then they turned brown, then they turned black, and they fell off. The promise of God that when our ancestor broke out from God, that would trickle down to us. That's why we bury people today. But there's a promise that one is coming someday. One who has the power to put the branch back in the tree. To make things right between God and man again. And the next day we went to the next lesson in the chronological teaching to the story of Cain and Abel. And as I'm starting to walk through these sons of Adam and Eve, one of the Yembe stands up in the back and he says, Wait, 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 wait. Stop the teaching, stop the teaching, stop the talk. This one that you speak of, Cain, Is he the one? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, is he the one who will put the branch back in the tree? Oh, what a great question. He said, no, he's not the one. He sits down and I mean, people are just yelling at him. What a dumb question. And then all the people that are close to him are like, that's a great question. I wanted to ask it too. He sits down. Every Old Testament character that we introduced, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, someone got up and asked the question, is he the one? Ladies and gentlemen, this is the whole thrust, in case you don't understand it, this is the whole thrust of the Old Testament. The overarching goal of the whole Old Testament, who's the one? Who is the one who will redeem us from what happened in Genesis chapter 3? This is what it's pushing towards. These are the theological implications. We tried this. We tried that. This individual. No, 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 no. There has to be someone else. Someone who is perfect, who is sinless. And finally, we got to the book of John. We didn't, when we introduced Jesus, we didn't go in Luke. We didn't have his origin story. We went straight to the book of John. And we see John the Baptist in John chapter 1 sees Jesus walking alongside the river Jordan. And as we read this for the first time in their translated scriptures, by this time we had had literally literacy classes. We had developed an alphabet for them, and they were following along in their own translated portions of Scripture. And this guy, Jesus, comes on the scene, and John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We had about seven Yemvievi stand up in the back. Wait, 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 wait. Lili jono li dagomonima, lili dokino nima, lo omomona maduganis. This one that Jono is speaking of, is he the one, or are we waiting for another? Guys, it was the privilege of my life, privilege of my life to stand there and say, no, he's the one. He's the one. And the Yembies, they start, um, again, they're not like you guys. They start yelling from all the corners, stop the talk of John who dunks in water. Who cares about him? (laughs) Tell us about this one. 
Tell us about this one who is going to make things wetter. Tell us about the one who's going to put the branch back in the tree. Tell us today. Teaching time started stretching out to two, three hours as we continued on for another month, teaching about this one who was so different than all of the others who had come before. And finally, on April 21st, 2008, we got to the point where we shared the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And we had about 45 to 50 who understood who Jesus was and that by his work they had been saved from their sins and made right again with the God of the universe, just like it was back in the Garden of Eden. Man and God walking hand in hand. How those 45 to 50 lived and how they died drew more and more people to the church, to where the church is over 500 today. They have their own elders, their own deacons, and they just sent out their own missionaries to a neighboring people group. And so I go back uh, in 2016, I came back here and my wife and I felt like it would be the best use of the remainder of our lives to train up missionaries that would do what we did in Yembe Yembe, to go to those types of places to take the gospel there. So I go back to Yembe Yembe, though, every year to check on that church. Got back uh, just a few months ago for my latest trip to there and just seeing them, your brothers and sisters in the Lord, that someday you will meet face to face. So that's the background that we come into this passage with. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 28. Let's read this really quickly, and then we will move to Romans, and we will wrap up our time. This is the most famous of the Great Commission passages. There are five Great Commission passages, and this is the one that is most well-known because it's the clearest. It's the clearest understanding we have of why the church exists. The church does not exist to make better families, to to build stronger marriages, to help the poor. Those are all great things that we are called to do as Christians, but we have a mission that we are on, and this is where the mission comes from. This is called the Great Commission, where he commissions us to carry out this mission. So verse 16, we'll start there. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God. So we can draw two things. If you're taking notes, there are two points to this passage in Matthew that I'm going to make points on. There's dozens of points in here, but we don't have the time to get into that. The two main. Number one, if you're a Christian, you're a person under authority. If you're a Christian, You're a person under authority. We see in this passage, he says here in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you call yourself a Christ follower, you don't get to decide what you want to do with your life. You don't get to decide where you want to go, how you want to live. One of the banes of American Christianity is that we interpret gifting as calling. Sometimes God will use our gifting. Sometimes he won't. And the king has the right to choose. One of the things that people ask me sometimes is, how often did you use your business background in Yembe Yembe? You know how often I used it? Not once. Not one time. The king chose to use my background, my gifting, not at all in that particular setting. The king has the right to do that. If you call yourself a Christian, you're a man or you're a woman under authority. 
And then there's the second part that we can see in here in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. What is that word, nations? Because some people will mistakenly associate that with what we think of as geopolitical nation states. We've got Germany, we've got Mexico, we've got Argentina. We're supposed to go to all of those. But the the word nations, and some of you that have listened to podcasts or heard teaching on this, know that that particular Greek word is the word ethne. This is the word that we pull out in English, the word ethnicities. What Jesus is saying here is, I want you to go to all the ethne of the world and make disciples of all of them. If that's where we are to go, what is the dominant marker of an ethnic group? Head and shoulders, there's one dominant marker of an ethnic group the world over. You know what it is? Language. Language. We identify peoples, we identify ethnicities by language. We press on as the people of God, commissioned by God, under God's authority, to make disciples of all of the languages of the world. It starts after the Tower of Babel, the mark that the king has come in Pentecost. Remember in Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, what's the mark that the king has come? that men and women were expressing the glories of God in their own languages. And we press on to Revelation 5, 9, Revelation 7, 9. What does it say? Every nation, every people, every language, every tribe will be there. This dominant marker, is it the totality of the Great Commission? No, but it is a dominant marker that we go to all of the ethne of the world. This is the commission that's been given us. But how do we go to these places? What's the strategy behind that? And I think that's where Romans 10 helps us so much. Turn over to Romans 10, and this is the passage where we're going to camp a little bit today. Romans 10, 13 through 15. We're going to look at this as Paul, in the middle of the book of Romans, explicates for us this strategy to get to these places, get to these peoples, get to these languages that still have yet to hear of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's read this passage, and then we're going to have three points that come out of this. Romans 10, 13 through 15 says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so if you're taking notes, point number one under our Romans text is this. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. Look at this opening statement that Paul says. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God saves. And he saves everybody. This is a sweet, wonderful truth that regardless of income, sex, race, citizenship, jail record, number of divorces, felonies, God saves sinners. God saves you. He saves me. He saves the Yembi Yembis. He saves people from around the world, and he saves us all by his own power. If you ever hear a mature Christian get up to give their testimony, or if you ever hear a new Christian, I love listening to new Christians. Man, it was some of the funnest interviews I've ever done in my life with the MBMBs. They're brand new believers. You talk about unvarnished. Woo! Just straight, and you're going to get it full bore. 
But as you hear people express their Christianity, they never get up and they say some version of, when I finally was smart enough, when I'd finally read enough systematic theologies, when I finally went to seminary, all the pieces, no, 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 no. When I was at my lowest, the king reached down and saved me from my sins. It was never us doing the saving. It was never our knowledge. Oh, when I could put the pieces together, when I'd lived a certain way, then it all came. Mm. It's usually at the bottom. And the king reaches down and rescues us from our sins. In Yembi Yembi, when we were teaching this concept of a savior, one that would come in and would rescue us from our need, they didn't have a concept for this. And so we had to think into their worldview how they would speak about this. And what we have in Yembi Yembi, we hike long distances at times, and there are rivers that we have to cross. And these rivers are just torrential. They rise depending on the rains in the night, and they can kill you quite fast if you fall into them. And so instead of hiking for miles to get around them, they take a huge tree and they'll drop the tree. They'll knock it down with axes and they'll drop the tree across the river. And the Yembis will uh, walk across the tree. But sometimes there are older people and kids who don't have the strength to walk across. And so they name a young man, a young man who's strong enough, who has got really good feet. And he will pick up the older people and the kids and carry them across one by one. They call him the bridge man, the man who takes us from one side to the other. And this concept, you know what they called, eventually what they called Jesus? The bridge man, the one who takes us from Satan's side to God's side, who takes us from darkness to light. You know what the job of the people on the back of the bridge man is? Be quiet and hold still. That's your only job. Don't try and help. The more you help, the more likely it is we both go in the water. Guys, this is us. This is how God saves us. He takes us, warts and all, baggage and all, to the other side without our help, without any need of it. Because the more we try and help, the less likely it is that we make it to the other side. God saves sinners. And then there's this spot where Paul starts to, he speaks almost sarcastically. Listen to how he says this. He says this in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Well, all the answers are the same. They can't. People in faraway lands, in Indonesia, in Saudi Arabia, in Tajikistan, in Kazakhstan, cannot understand the gospel unless someone goes to them, someone preaches. Yes, God saves, but we see from Scripture God saves sinners through means. And what are the means that God uses? The most often, the ordinary means of grace comes through his people, Christians. Someone's got to go. So if you're taking notes, there has to be goers. There has to be goers. And goers have to do two things when they go. They've got to learn the language so they can preach, and they've got to teach the Bible. They learn the language, and they preach the Bible. John Piper will say of this passage, if you believe the Bible to be true, you have three options when it comes to the Great Commission. One, you're a goer. Two, you're a sender. And three, you're a disobeyer. There is no fourth option. You're a goer. You're a sender or you're a disobeyer, because we're all a part of this commission to some degree, and we'll talk about that in a little bit here. But the goers have to go. 
They learn the language so they can preach. And then they teach the Bible to the people so that they will understand the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Then there's this spot, and we're going to talk about the senders now in Romans 10, 15, where it says, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There's goers, and then there's senders. You guys are about an average North American church in that, in, as far as age and demographics go, which means there's about 10% of you that could likely be goers, that could take the gospel somewhere where it's never been before. There's various types of goers, but I'm going to hone in on unreached language groups because it is the smallest group of all missionaries today. There's about 10% of you that could go there, but there's 90% of you that could be good senders. And what are the marks of a good sender? Yes, praise God. I hope this church in Ankeny, Ohio, Ohio, I said that last service too. Ohio and Iowa. Iowa, one of your teams won last night. One of your teams didn't win last night. College football. Um, know your culture. I hope this church raises up goers. I hope your legacy in here until the king returns is there are young men and young women in here that are raised up to go to the ends of the earth. But until that day comes where you continue to see more and more goers going out, I hope that you're faithful senders as well that you send with the same zeal as those who go. The three marks of good senders, if you're taking notes. Number one, senders raise their sons and daughters to be goers. Senders, good senders, raise their sons and daughters to be goers. There's a famous missionary, the, one of the best biographies on missionaries there is. It's called The Autobiography of John Payton. P-A-T-O-N, not Patton, Peyton. Peyton was a Scotsman, and he ended up going to the island of the New Hebrides. Now it's called Vanuatu to this day. And he lost his wife six months into his time over there. She died of malaria. Then his son, his newborn son, died a few days later. He had to sleep on their graves because of the people that he was with. They were cannibalistic so that they wouldn't dig their bodies up and eat them. He slept on their graves for three months. And Peyton stayed to the glory of God for 30 more years, and he saw a church established. I was over there two months ago, and I got to see that church that is over 200 years old, still going to this day, planted by this faithful Scotsman. In the midst of Peyton's ministry, he came back to his native land, Scotland, and he heard them singing a song that was very popular in Scotland at that time. And the chorus went something like this. Send our sons and daughters glorious to the nations abroad. And Peyton got up at one of these church services and he says, everybody likes to sing that song as long as we're talking about somebody else's sons and daughters. Friends, are we talking about your sons and daughters or somebody else's? Has it always got to be somebody else's? One of the problems, there's problems on the West Coast and on the East Coast of the United States and things that hang up people from sending in missions. But in the Midwest, you know what it typically is? Family. Family becomes this unspoken idol. Dare not speak against it. Someone else's sons and daughters, good for them, not for mine. Do we raise our sons and daughters to be soldiers? That someday they will stand in front of the king. I'll stand in front of the king. 
and I'll give an account for how I raised them. Do we raise them as temporary trust? They're not meant to be with us forever. Do we put into their DNA Gladys Allward, John Payton, Adniram Judson? Or is that for somebody else's sons and daughters, but not for ours? Good senders raise their sons and daughters in such a way to where someday if they come to us and say, Mom and Dad, I think God's calling me. I think God's asked me to possibly be one of the goers. With tears in our eyes because we're normal human beings, we'll take them to the Des Moines airport. We'll stand behind them, but we raise them in such a way to where they're eternal in their perspective. Good senders raise their sons and daughters to be goers. Number two, good senders live in such a way that the Great Commission affects their life here. The Great Commission affects their life here. The way that they live, the way, the type of cars that they drive, the houses, smaller houses, the 401k is a little bit skinnier. They're good senders because they don't want the young people that were raised up in first family to have to go to Arizona, to have to go to Alaska, to have to go to Washington, to have to go to all of these different places to find support. No, 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 no. We're going to live in such a way to where when the king returns, we have scars for sending. One of the famous missionaries, his name is John or William Carey, he's called the father of modern missions. Uh, one of the illustrations he used as he left for India was that I'm going down a deep, dark mine and I'll go down as long as you'll hold the rope. And he was talking to his home church as he left for the first time, never to return again, went over to India, ended up dying over at India, but he established a college and a seminary that's still going to this day. Churches translated the Bible into six languages. And one of the things that I firmly believe is that someday when the king returns, and the king is coming back, could be today, could be tomorrow, could be next month, could be in 20 years, I don't know, but the king is coming. And when the king comes, they think he's going to ask the ones who went down the mine, the goers, show me your hands. Show me what it costs you to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But he's going to ask everybody at the top of the mine who lowered the goers down, the senders, show me your hands. Show me your hands. Don't show me your small group's hands. Don't show me first families. Show me your hands. Has it cost you anything? Will you have any scars on that great day? Good senders live in such a way that the Great Commission affects their life here. And then finally, and we'll end on this, good senders are faithful church members. Good senders are faithful church members. When I got married, I remember one of the elders gave me some advice and he says this, you want to be a good dad, you want to be a good husband, you want to be a good Christian, you know what the number one rule is? Show up. Show up. Show up for your wife. Show up for your kids. Show up for your church. One of the things that has caused disastrous results in the church in America, Sunday sports leagues for kids. Church or travel ball. Ah, we got to go on travel ball. You know what? Your son and daughter are going to meet the king someday. They have a very small percentage chance to be a professional athlete. What comes first? Are you a faithful church member? One of the things we drum into the radius students is if they're going to plant a church somewhere where the gospel has never been, this is going to take 10, 15, 20 years. This is going to take the best years of their life. Be faithful. Be faithful. Stay the course. Stay the course through malaria, through dengue fever, through losing an arm, through losing a child. <clears throat> Stay faithful. Stay faithful. But here's the question. 
if the goers are called to that level of faithfulness, what of the senders? Will you be here when they get back? I praise God for the Akins, the family that you have raised up from in your midst that's going to Indonesia, faithful over there. Will you be here when they return in 15, 20 years? Or will COVID, vaccines, travel ball, and eh, we don't like the type of hymns that are coming in now. Eh, pastor goes a little long. Are you faithful? I'm not talking about preaching from the pulpit, preaching the gospel. If the gospel stops being preached from this pulpit, you find another church. But if the gospel is faithfully preached, you stay to the glory of God. And because you're a Christian, and first and foremost as Christians, we show up. We're faithful church members. The Bible and church history know nothing of church members who are independent from the local church. There is no such thing historically. That's a modern phenomenon. Are we faithful? If we're senders, if we're faithful senders, we're faithful church members. Friends, I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the legacy you are beginning to build. The fact that you are still under 15 year, 50 years old means you're still beginning. But you're building and your posture is set in a certain direction. Continue on the path you have so faithfully started. Raise up goers who will go and raise up senders, the army of senders that will stand behind. And someday when we meet the king, what you may put before him is not just what happened in the English-speaking language, but what happened in languages and peoples and ethnies around the world to his eternal glory and to your eternal credit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for saving us from our sins. We are a people who did not deserve this grace, but we were saved. You saved sinners, Father. But you have called us to a commission, to a job that is still unaccomplished. We know it's unaccomplished because you have not returned yet. But someday you will, Father. And until that day comes, may you raise up parents that would faithfully set the Great Commission before their children, that would unflinchingly look past this world and to eternity beyond. Father, raise up senders in this congregation that would have scars to their eternal glory. Raise up an army from this church, and we know that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your word. It lights our path. It illuminates. It makes us wise to things that we do not see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.